Hello and welcome. This is your host, Jonathan Morgan, and you're listening to Design Everywhere, the podcast that invites you to ask what if and challenges you to understand the why that drives design. Today's conversation is with Derek Hess, and we're going to break this up into two parts, where the second part is dedicated fully to his process. So everything from inspiration all the way through the creating of his art. So definitely come back and check that one out. But today, let's get going. Here's the conversation. So my guest today is Derek Hess. Derek is a prolific internationally recognized artist, made a name for himself from everything from fine arts, concert posters, album covers, apparel design, tattooing, music festivals, myriad other things. He's the subject of the award-winning documentary, Force Perspective, as well as the author and illustrator of the book, 31 Days in May, which is a tribute to Mental Health Awareness Month and an avenue to get his work out to help remove the stigma associated with mental illness. Welcome, Derek. Wow, that was great. You like that? I did my research. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> yes, you did. So you may know Derek's work or you may be new to it. I would say you might want to, if you're listening to this, open up another tab in your browser and check out DerekHess.com and get an appreciation of what we're going to talk about today. Appreciation for Derek's art, creativity that's going to be the backdrop for the uh, the conversation today. So to start I've known Derek for quite a while, probably since early 90s, right? Yep. As I was preparing for this interview, I kind of like dug deep into the archives, you know, looking at your work through the years. And I kind of came to this conclusion that you're not just an artist, you're kind of a designer of these movements. And today I was kind of hoping, and and we're going to kind of approach this in two parts. And one, I want to kind of dig into a few of those. So in in some of our other episodes, I've alluded to the fact that my early career was centered around music. So my early music career, you know, I I say career in air quotes because you usually have to make money at it to call it a career. So that's not quite what I did. But uh, I kind of started out during and in many ways because of a couple of these movements that I think you were really instrumental in in the early 90s. And one was Cleveland's underground music scene. And two was this renaissance and concert poster art. So Derek, I know hopefully you don't mind, but like kind of going back to those roots, can we start there? Can you kind of talk about where this all started? Well, sure. It started when I actually, I had moved to Detroit for a couple of years to do some art school there before I transferred back to Cleveland. And I was seeing all these bands there in Detroit. And when I moved back, I found a lot of these bands were skipping our market here in Cleveland. And I got a job at the Euclid Tavern at the same time, chopping their chicken wings. And uh, I started bugging the owners, you know, because it was a place where bands could play, the Euclid Tavern, that they should start booking bands there. Booking, I mean, they had bands there, but they were like jam bands and blues bands and stuff like that. And which was okay. I mean, at least the blue stuff was okay. But it was a venue that would have been available. And so I, I kept on them about, you know, you should book these bands here. You should book these bands here. And they said one day, well, you book them here. And, you know, I had no idea. You know, of course I said yes, because I always told people that if I ever had the opportunity to make a difference with the music thing, you know, industry, I would because, uh, you know, the frustration about the bands not playing Cleveland, the frustration about the big, big uh, fish in the pond here, the, uh, you know, Belkin Productions and what they did or, or didn't do. 
And uh, anyhow, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was given the green light to do it. So I started contacting the local bands. And, uh, you know, it's baby steps. And they also gave me Monday night, you know, the hardest night of the week to book. So they, they were like, you know, here you go. I'll take Monday, kid. Do what you can. And uh, very quickly, I developed a core group of people that would come to every Monday show. I think it was, you know, it was a combination of the bands and the environment because the Uke was just such a cool place to hang out at. It was like, I think it was the second oldest bar in Cleveland. Could be wrong on that, but I, I believe that's what I was told. So, yeah, I started having bands, uh, local bands. And, God, there there's this one show, and I don't remember who the bands were, but one of the bands was Right Wing from the West Side. And the other band wasn't. And there is a huge fight. There's a huge barroom brawl. And the cops had to come and break it up. And uh, I could talk, <laughs> talk about that for a while. But it, very quickly, it, I immediately the next morning booked up another month of bands because I was afraid the uke would say all right no more and that's what they did you know they said we're going to pull the plug on this and I'm like well I got all these shows booked and they're like all right we'll do those shows and then we're going to stop doing it and you know I busted my ass promoting these shows and stuff and uh they they did well and so then I got the green light to continue I was studying printmaking at the same time at the Cleveland Institute of Art so I was interested in how shows were promoted Let's put it that way. And then at the same time, I was able to contact a few agencies, you know, that, that were booking bands that handled, you know, like one agent handled most of the amphetamine reptile bands. Another angel agent handled most of the touch and go bands. And, you know, another one handled CZ records and sub pop and alternative tentacles and stuff like that. I got a hold of one, the AMREP guy, Peter Davis, and he offered me helmet. And, it, you know, I'm, I'm like all into the helmet record. It was brand new and it was just so cool. The first first helmet record, strap it on. And so I was all over that. And, you know, I'm like, absolutely. And he heard I was excited. So he charged me more than he probably <laughs> would have charged me because he had <laughs> Anthony Nicolaitis. He used to book the Agora, told me one day, he goes, Derek, you can't like music if you book shows. <laughs> Because they'll reel you in, you know, they, you'll get excited about something and they'll, but anyhow, <laughs> the show worked out regardless. I did, I was able to cover the, the guarantee and uh, it went off real smoothly and uh, they were great. Were you at that show? I wasn't at that show, but I, I know that Helmet gives you a whole lot of credit in their success. Being a touring musician myself, Monday nights were horrible. I mean, you were living for like, you know, having a night that you're not going to make any money at all was just such a horrible thing to look at. So you just wanted to book something. But that band in, in particular, that kind of rang true to me. It was just like, you know, anywhere you could get that you could get a Monday night. I, I, I think it was pure genius that maybe it was uh, circumstance or luck that it turned out that way. But you kind of filled a, a void there. No, that, you're exactly right. That was the thing is like the bands, the agents found out that Cleveland was doing Monday nights. So the band, if they were driving from uh, New York to Chicago or Buffalo to D Detroit or whatever, they could pick up a gig in between instead of it just being a travel day. So that worked out really well. And you got to be known that we're having the cool bands on Monday nights. And so people would be showing up not knowing who the band was. They just showed up because they, they were pretty sure the band would be pretty cool. So is that like the first bigger band that you got in there? Yeah, Helmet was the first touring band. That I got, you know, you know, I had doing been doing the locals there for a few months. 
I started in 89. So Helmet came through in 90. So it took a little while before I was able to get, you know, in touch with these agents and talk to agents and, you know, paying attention to Monday night in Cleveland. But once the word got out, you know, bands were lining up to get in on Mondays. And so I was like booking these shows, like doing three or four bands, generally three, three bands, but the three bands weren't touring together. They just were all traveling to get, you know, traveling the same day. So I was getting these real interesting lineups that weren't showing up in other cities, you know, where, where like Helmet, well, Helmet played with Psychobilly Cadillac in Cleveland. <laughs> and I did that because Psychobilly Cadillac always had my back. When I needed a band in there, they would say, absolutely, we'll play. And the word got out, Helmet was playing the uke. And some other bands, I'm not going to mention who they were, but were like, you know, felt entitled that it, we sound like Helmet, so we want to play with Helmet. We want 250 bucks. <laughs> and at that time, there was no way I was paying an opening band 250 bucks. And so I went with Psychobilly Cadillac. A couple of bands got pissed off about that, but oh well. You know, you know, I took care of the people who took care of me. And uh, I don't know where it's going. Oh, yeah, yeah. So like Helmet play Cleveland with a local, but Helmet, you know, another band could play, you know, like with the Honeymoon Killers played with Chrome Cranks or something like that. They're all touring separately, but, you know, whereas in the next city, they would probably play with just a local opener. So that made the the lineups more interesting, too, at the Uke. It's interesting, too, because I think that's part of this, almost like these movements and, and where Cleveland kind of underground music really flourished, I think, was there was a ton of cross-pollination taking place in the 90s where, you know, you would just end up on these like kind of weird bills where it'd be, you know, potentially different genres or not usually matched up with each other that you're kind of introducing, and not just you, you know, other promoters in the area too, and some friendly, like-minded bands also that had the, some control over it. But it was, it was a very eclectic time, an interesting time with the types of bands that were coming through Cleveland at that point. I was relatively new to Cleveland and the scene up here at that point in time, too, that I didn't really know what to expect. And that just kind of became the norm. I kind of fell into, you know, and it was a, a couple of years, few years after you started doing this, but I kind of fell into this scene that was already starting to establish in that way. And I, I think that was, it was, you know, so much of it happened at the, at the Euclid Tavern and came out of the Euclid Tavern. When I got to Cleveland, it was, I didn't know it was a blues bar. I just thought it was this cool place you went to go see underground bands that you can't see anywhere else. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, eventually that's what it really became. You know, I mean, I quit booking in 95. Somewhere along there, I started getting offered these bands that were established and that we knew they would do good, but they could only play on a Thursday night. You know, the only day they're coming through Cleveland or they could only play Saturday night. And so I, I would take it to the owners and eventually they said, OK, we'll cancel whatever they had on Thursday and let me let me do the show there or or cancel Mr. Stress on Saturdays and so I could do the shows there on Saturdays as well. So they, yeah, the Uke really, you know, the format really did change eventually from known as a blues bar or, you know, jam band bar to being this alternative, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, rock club. I think, you know, talking about like some of these bigger bands starting to come through is one that saw had some promise in getting more days of the week. I actually saw a photo online this past week as I was writing up some notes for this interview um, of your booking schedule for, I think it was like 1992 and you had like Green Day in there. And it, it, I'm guessing the parentheses with the dollar amount was their guarantee and it was like $300. Yeah, and about 150 people showed up. Yeah. 
the Green Day guys were really, really, really cool. They were really happy with their guarantee. They were happy with their case of beer. And uh, they played some happy music, and it went over well. <laughs> win, 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 right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so when and how did the flyers and poster art start to take form? Well, the flyers, you know, I was doing from the very beginning, you know, because of our artists, you know, and, and going to art school. And drawing was my, one of my majors. So I started drawing these flyers based on the band's name, you know, black and white flyers. And they had a consistent feel to them. And so it took a little bit of time, but saturating the market, you know, it worked. It's like people would see the flyer, they'd see the artwork, and they'd say, oh, that's for the Yuko Tavern. You know, maybe we should go. And then they would see that's, that's the artwork, that's for the Yuko Tavern, that's the same artist. And then uh, eventually they'd be like, that's that artist, and that shows at the Yuko. It was a vehicle to get my art exposed without having to be in a gallery for, you know, for exposure. And uh, where, you know, it, it's difficult you know, for artists to get exposure without having gallery support. So I just kind of went around that, you know, not intentionally, but that's what happened. And later on in 93, the concert poster resurgence has started with Kozik and Coop and Taz and Emic to a certain degree. My now business partner approached me and he had been seeing my, my flyers at this point had gotten out there, you know, bands were taking them with them and stuff. And he lived in Texas and he was seeing these flyers for the Yuko Tavern in Texas. And he'd moved up here and he came to the Yuko and asked me, and he, he was dealing with concert posters as well. And he asked me why I wasn't doing silkscreen concert posters. And I'm like, well, I don't have any money for that, you know, because booking the Yuko and liking music, again, would not make me a great deal of a profit because, you know, again, I'm paying for the bands that I loved, you know, and the, the agents knew that and took advantage of the kid. And anyhow, I told him I couldn't afford doing these posters. And he says, well, I'll tell you what, I will bankroll it and then we'll split the profits if it sells well. And so that's what he did. Posters sold well. And I've been working with them ever since. And that's how the concert posters got started. And also, I knew how I wasn't studying silk screening. I was studying lithography, but I knew how printmaking worked. So when I would, I would make film separations for these concert posters, the old school way, you know, hands, you know, hand on film and, and opaquing marker and ruby lift. And uh, I knew how to make these separations and knew how to pick the colors and tell the printer how opaque or how translucent I want the inks to be and so on and so forth. So it was easy for the printer to put these things together. Again, that's because I was studying printmaking at the CIA. Thinking back and like living through that time, and you'd see the flyers around all the time. You'd see the flyers in the in the Euclid Tavern. You'd see it in every record store in town and on the telephone poles and everything else. But you were really, I would say, you had to have been the first, at least in my era, that was actually printing these up as like limited edition sets, signed and numbered lithographs. Being a band that would play these shows, it was like always the the added bonus that, yeah, you had the flyer version of it, but you also were usually taking home a lithograph of it. Was it this partnership with your business manager that kind of made that leap? It wasn't just about galleries, but you were also starting to sell your work in, it seemed like just about all, the majority of the, the shows that you were promoting, you're were, you were making these flyers and collectible flyers out of, correct? Right. And they, they, they weren't lithos, oh, okay. they were silk screen posters, yeah. just so we're on the same page. The poster resurgence, that's how it went. You, the, you would make an edition and use them for actual for promotion, put, putting them up on poles or putting them up in record store windows or whatever. And then you have X amount more that you would give to the bands. And so those 
posters you're not making any money on. Those, you know, those are done. You had to give them away and, and use them promotion so the rest of the edition is then what you sold and so that's how that you made a profit and the money from that generally went into the next printing for the next poster and it, it rolled over and rolled over and rolled over and at one point we started to have to worry about is this a strong enough image is this going to sell because if it doesn't sell we're going to be stuck on a pile of paper and you know there's no cash and then in to invest in the next concert poster so that was one of the things we had to you know think about when making these prints first off they were all selling you know and, and then eventually that we would get a, a dud here and a dud there that we still have stacks of over were at the uh, gallery like park market and they were brilliant and I think the poster is, is really killer and, you know, it's really well done. It's a great drawing on it to cut, you know, there, there's some layering with the backgrounds with, with several different colors and, uh, but they didn't sell. And sometimes they don't sell because of the band and Bark Market just wasn't a big enough band to, you know, have people buying it for the namesake, you know, where, where some did sell just for the artwork. I mean, like the Laughing Hyenas poster was going to sell because it's laughing hyenas but uh the images of a guy swinging a really huge matchstick the size of a golf club and you know and he's striking it on the ground doing a golf swing with it and as it strikes the ground then it lights on fire and you see the line go up around the follow-through of the swing and we sold a bunch of those to golfers who know (laughs) nothing about the band (laughs) you don't choose your buyers right it's funny that that image, I, I can see it vividly right now because it was such like, at least at that time, and also being a Laughing Hyenas fan and a fan of your work at the time, it's iconic to me. And it was just like this use of color in certain ways that just made that thing. It was just such an awesome poster. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorites. So as you kind of evolved, you really started to take off both locally, nationally, internationally. I mean, you've achieved some pretty cool notoriety from this. I mean, you're, we're in Cleveland, so Rock and Roll Hall of Fame isn't that big of a stretch, but you're in the Louvre too, correct? Yes. So how did that come about? A couple things. I did interviews, you know, in magazines, you know, about the artwork, right? And one before that one, I did an interview in a tattoo magazine and uh, they showed the artwork, but being a tattoo magazine, I had to show some of my tattoos and I have a whole bunch of Captain America tattoos. And that magazine got to somebody at Marvel Comics, and Marvel Comics then contacted me to do some artwork for Captain America. That's how that kind of works, because then I also did an interview with this magazine called Affiche, and it's a magazine about poster art, and it's somewhere in Europe. I don't know what country it's out of, but uh, they did a spread, the article on a spread of the pieces, and somebody at the Louvre got a hold of it and uh, sent me a letter wanting a body of work for their permanent poster collection. Just out of the blue. So you never know what's going to happen. You know, I think I'm going to get a really good job from doing this interview with you. (laughs) Excellent. Perfect. Yeah. So remember that. A lot of this has, you know, kind of this evolution. It's part promotion, you know, of of bands, of things that you love, part promotion of you and your art. And, you know, it's turned into a business over the years. Even music festivals, the Stress Fest, I was lucky enough to play in a couple of those, both here and in Austin. When I introduced this interview, you know, kind of talking about like, you're creating these movements, you're the designer of movements. That's kind of another way of saying that you don't do anything small. Like when you go into something, it's like you're kind of going in and you build around that, you know, from doing clubs and trying to boost up the Cleveland music scene to the poster art, to the music festival, 
And I kind of want to get into this now while we have some time to talk, but moving into um, some of your your personal life and your personal experience, and hopefully you don't mind me going here, but you've been very open about the fact that you are bipolar and you have taken steps to really try to bring awareness to that cause. And even to the point where starting up a a festival centered around that and releasing a book around that. Do you want to kind of go into that and see, just let us know, like, like what was that transition like? Like what made you want to kind of open up about this? You know, um, I don't know what made me want to do that, but uh, definitely uh, I felt it was something that, you know, I could talk about it. You know, I had no problem talking about it. It's like, you know, I, I've got this mental illness issue. It's not something I wanted or developed. It's not like somebody wants diabetes or somebody wants MS. You know what I mean? It's a disease and it's something that, uh, it's just something I have. And everybody's got something. But people didn't want to talk about it because it had the stigma because it was like, you know, why don't you just buck up, you know, you know, cheer up, it'll be okay kind of thing. You know, they, they didn't view it as being a disease. So I started talking about it. Back in the day, when I, I was first diagnosed as being de- having depression, and so I was being medicated for that, and, you know, I talked about being depressed, too. You know, I was open about it, you know, and the thing about bipolar is generally you're diagnosed with depression first because depression comes with bipolar, but you have, all, you have the other symptoms as well. So, you know, some people are just depressed, and they get treated for that, and then they're fine, you know, as long as they stay on their meds. I started doing all this crazy stuff when I went and told my doctor about it. And he, you know, that's when he's like, oh, my God, you're, you got, you're bipolar. You know, we'll start treating you for that. And uh, I was talking about this was, I don't know when it was, late 90s, maybe early 2000s, probably late 90s. And uh, my doctor said, you know, you talk about being depressed. Why don't you talk about bipolar? I'm like, oh, no, no, no. That's not socially acceptable, you know, because it, it really felt it wasn't. There was a stigma to it, you know, and, you know, where everybody was depressed. So you could talk about depression at that point. Um, so it was a number of years before I started talking about bipolar because it just didn't seem like it would be cool. You know, I mean, not that being bipolar is cool, you know, but, it, you know, it, it just had the stigma. And, and so I started talking about it eventually. And uh, people were like, you know, it's, you know, like were coming up to me and saying, I think that's great that you're talking about this. I'm bipolar too. And, uh, you know, no one wants to talk about it or my brother or sister, or husband or wife, you know, it's bipolar. And, you know, I think it's a good idea. And I think it's great you're talking about it. So that's when, you know, I, you know I'm talking with Marty, my, Marty Jeremy, my business partner. And we kind of came up with the idea of making artwork around the, around that subject and which turned into a, a festival called Acting Out, which was a, a week-long fest, for lack of a better word, uh, of mental health awareness. And we had speakers and uh, films, and we had NAMI. We had a walk for NAMI, North American Mental Illness, or I don't know what it stands for, but it has to do with that. And who else did? We had some, we had some concerts, uh, some bands of people that, that, that had issues as well. And it went over really well. But it was a lot of work, so, you know, just for two, three people uh, that we only did it, well, we did it twice. And, uh, again, like you said, if we're going to do it, you know, you need to do it right. So to continue doing it, 
it, it, we just couldn't do it. You know, we, there just wasn't enough steam with, with just a handful of people. But it had impact. And, and that's what I mean. It's like you have this like kind of innate sense of direction, I guess. That, that, you know, if, if you're gonna, going to open up about something or if you're going to want to go at something, you're going to go at it and put everything you can to it. And I, I think what you did really raised, raised awareness in our area, for sure. And I think now, I mean, you're hearing more and more people talking about bipolar in, you know, more specifically. I mean, it's all over the news this week, just from some different news around Kanye West and, and stuff like that. But it, it needs to be talked about. And I think you you provided this platform for it. So, I, I you know, wh- whether it went for two years or 10 years, it did a lot for the, the community and it got a lot of people talking about it. Oh, thank you. Did a book too, the thirty-one days of May, which you mentioned in the very beginning. That was May was Mental Health or is Mental Health Month, and so one year. I think twenty eighteen. Three years ago. Three years ago. I'm kidding. I yeah, I guess it was three years ago. Every day of May, I would post a picture on social media, uh, both Facebook and Instagram, that pertain to some sort of mental illness and or chemical dependency, alcoholism, dual diagnosed subject. And I would do the picture, then I would write a description of, you know, what the picture was about. And we did it every day in May. And it went over really well. And we got a lot of positive feedback, you know, from all over because we're doing it on the internet. So the following year in May, we decided, well, let's take one page for every day of May. And then it being in a book, can add more pictures for that day. So like May 3rd would have like five pictures. May, you know, 18th, I'd have two pictures. You know, may, maybe one day I'll have only one. But, uh, Instead of not being able to show a whole bunch on social media, you know, we could only show one at a time. So we put the book together and I went out and I toured it for the month of May, coast to coast. And now I have a a feel for what bands go through on tour. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I always knew about the tour because I'm dealing with the touring bands, but I never actually went out and did one. And uh, it was actually, it was very cool. And it it was, uh, there was a lot of positive responses. You know, a lot of the places did a movie screening of the Force Perspective movie and also did the book signings. In some places just did the book signings and a a presentation. But yeah, that, uh, and went over well again. And a lot of positive feedback with people who have dealt with, deal with, or want to know more about mental health. That's awesome. I think that's a good bookmark on this. We're going to do this as a two-part episode so everybody knows. So we're going to follow up with another conversation with Derek in our next episode. Thanks again for listening to Design Everywhere. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. We have a lot more episodes in the works. And if you can give us a rating or review, we'd love to hear what you think. You can follow the show on Twitter. Just search for Design Everywhere Podcast. That's at design underscore every. You can follow me, Jonathan Morgan, at Promo Rock. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A very special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jonathan Morgan, and this is Design Everywhere. Thanks for listening. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. 
You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.